Hello, and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. I'm your host, Katie Helper. Hey, everybody. I'm Gabe Pacheco. Make sure you join our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. And you'll get great bonus. you get extra bonus content. It's really fun. It's really worth it. We have a great segment where we talk to Erin Neff of the DSA, Democratic Socialists of America, about dating while socialists. That's a great one. Very personal. We also have some Matt Carp coming down the pike. Check out my piece I wrote on Paste about Susan Bordeaux. And... Again, you can always follow me at Twitter. My handle on Twitter is KT Helps. That's letter K, letter T, H A L P S. And Gabe Pacheco, his handle is Gabe underscore Pacheco. If you tweet about us, use the hashtag KT Helps Show. That's letter K, letter T, H A L P S H O W. What's up, Gabe? I'm feeling pretty good today, Katie. Good. You look well-rested. Thank vibrant. you. No, I've been up since 5 a.m. today. I never could have told. We have a great show for you today. We talk to Rania Kalik, a journalist who has reported from Syria. She's also constantly being attacked and blacklisted and having her talks canceled. So we're really excited to talk to her right before she goes on another big trip to the Middle East. She'll be going to Iraq and Syria and Lebanon. And we talked to Ben Norton. Ben Norton shares with us five of the worst responses to Syria. And a bunch of them come from the New York Times. You'd be surprised or not surprised to hear. We also talked to Nando Villa about the media bias in the reporting on foreign policy, both Syria and North Korea. Hey, Nando. Hey. Hey, how's it going? What's up? I'm good. Good. Thank you so much for talking to us. Hey, what's going on, Nando? What's up, Gary? Doing all right, man. Just chilling. Nando is a reporter, a correspondent, a video star for Fusion, and he's been having some great tweets. Nando R. Villa. Nando did a great video about one of the stories that we actually reported on about Darren Rainey, who was boiled alive. Oh, yeah. We live in the world's most punitive carceral state, but it's gotten so bad that our prison system could boil a man to death, and the people who did it will get off free. Seriously, this actually happened. Darren Rainey was 50 when he was sent to the Dade Correctional Institution for cocaine possession. About four months into his two-year sentence, he refused to clean up the literal shit in his cell. Maybe because a guard threw away his Quran, or maybe because Rainey had schizophrenia. So four guards put him in a rigged shower cell they used to punish inmates by cranking up the water temperature, according to prisoners, nurses, and counselors. Inside, Rainey cooked. Inmates report hearing him scream to be let out. By the time the guards unlocked the door nearly two hours later, he had collapsed on the floor, dead. He had burns on more than 90% of his body, according to the New Yorker. And a nurse told the Miami Herald that his body temperature was too high to measure on a thermometer. A 101-page report by the Miami-Dade State Attorney said his skin was, quote, slipping off. Two days later, when someone finally bothered to test the temperature of the shower, it was 160 degrees, which is 40 degrees above the state limit. He boiled alive. You know what else was in that 101-page report? The conclusion that the death was an accident. It blamed the death on a combination of a heart condition, complications from his mental illness, and confinement in a shower. It blamed the peeling skin on the humidity in the shower room and CPR attempts. It claimed that there were no burns on his body. They also decided, conveniently, that all the inmates were lying. Apparently, the four guards just wanted to torture him, not kill him. It was just an accident that he died during the torture. As I was shooting that video on the streets of Miami, um, a guy was walking by and he overheard what I was saying. And he goes, are you talking about the dude that got boiled alive? And I was like, yeah. He's like, yo, I just got out of, I was, I just got out of that place. I was there for nine years. No. I saw the things like guards just stabbing dudes to death and then claiming they fell down the stairs. Like he said it was like a horrible, horrible, horrible jail. 
which is just it, you, it's crazy to think that did you get that his that info stuff goes on what did you get his info this guy i did not no what i was like in the middle of the shoot he just like walked by yeah Oh, man. You got to find him. Go find him. Got to find him. Yeah. There are all these studies on yeah. that. Yeah, like they're, uh, I think you've mentioned this in the video. But Everything about this story is terrible, but it's not isolated. Inmates and counselors in the same facility say that guards frequently beat and starve the prisoners. And one inmate who hanged himself said in his suicide note that guards would yank them out of their cells in the middle of the night, force them to fight, and then bet on the outcome. They're like these things, air trays, where they give people trays with no food on it. As a joke, they like yeah. bribe prisoners to attack other prisoners. I'm, I'm from Miami, and the attorney, Kathy Fernandez Rundle, she's just been in power for a long time. She's kind of like a mainstay of the Miami community. And in her 20 years as a state attorney, has never once charged a, an officer for killing a person. So uh, she, she definitely has a very pro-police record. Anything you want to share about Catherine Fernandez's uh, reputation in Miami? Or her sons? Did you have any run-ins with them? <laughs> well... Uh, just marginal knowledge of them through uh, uh, my larger social circle. And her own sons both have been arrested for drug possession. So the irony is a little too too obvious. Yeah, she has two. She has twins, and one of them's a lawyer, which is great. He, he committed crimes, tried to get on a plane with a pipe and marijuana. Didn't want to end up yeah. in jail, though. The, the state attorney's office in Miami is kind of a relic from the, the cocaine days of the 1980s. And it was like a very large, very aggressive office that went after drug dealers and, you know, Colombian uh, drug traffickers and stuff like that. I mean, in the 80s, it was a very dangerous place. And now it's just not. But they still have that, they still have that culture of like very aggressive policing and uh, prosecution and stuff like that. You know, the, the, uh, the guards who were responsible were not charged by the, by the state attorney, Kathy Fernandez-Rundle. I think of you as the kind of go-to person on media stuff. Is the war being sold to us? What's going on with all that? I don't know about you guys, but I mean, I figured that after Iraq, we would have kind of been like a little bit more careful the next time around. And it's just been the, the speed at which they kind of turn on into full-on like fascist propaganda mode, like was astounding even to me when I didn't, and I didn't expect like a whole lot, but um, I, I, I expected maybe like a slight uh, level of skepticism, but like just once again, just we're seeing the same exact playbook. playbook. Not, not a single dissenting voice. Nando, uh, this is a hundred percent different. Nando, a hundred percent different. In the two thousand early two thousands, it was yellow cake. It was weapons of mass right. destruction. Now it's sarin gas barrel bombs. Night and day. Right. Apples and oranges. Figs right. and I'm dates. Sorry. I, yeah. I, Pumice I and baba ganoush. <laughs> but you were saying yeah. sorry. sorry. Yeah. You, you can tell how excited they are to just go back to like the same old playbook um, that they always had. Like they're dusting off the you know the greatest hits collection. They're even bringing back Brian Williams. You know? Oh my gosh! Uh, it, can we it, talk about that for a second? It's to see it. It's just very strange. So Brian Williams, of course, is a correspondent on MSNBC who has his own show called like The Eleventh Hour. And you yeah. know Brian Williams lot was busted lying a couple years ago when he said he was like on a chopper and he wasn't. He busted lying about his own war experience. Right. <laughs> It's not even like Judith Every Miller. Year. It's not even like one degree. Right. It's not even a degree of separation. It's like literally he couldn't have gotten the wrong information except for he lied himself. I've done some ridiculously stupid things like being in a helicopter I had no business being in in Iraq with drones coming into the airframe. But I, 
Did you I think also, he would die? Uh, briefly, sure. He was stealing valor. Was right. that what he was doing? Absolutely stealing valor. Stone valor, right here. Stone valor. Let's go. He reminds me of uh, the reporter in um, Natural Born Killers when he goes, "I was in Grenada, man. Uh, I was there when the shit yeah, hit the fan." Exactly. I've seen it. I was there when the hit the fan at Grenada. I saw it all go down at Grenada. I saw that movie, I don't remember it though. I do remember my dad always making a joke that he felt a lot safer knowing that Reagan invaded Grenada. He could sleep a lot better at night. Yeah. Jim Halper, hits from Jim yeah. Halper. Yeah, so Brian Williams, I don't understand why he would not like be on better behavior after he got busted lying. I actually defended him because I always thought that it was kind of funny that like he was the one who got in, more tr in trouble about Iraq and not, say, George Bush. Like, he was a liar, obviously, and lied about his experience, but at least he didn't cause that many people's deaths. But um, you're referring to, of course, an incident where, I'm reading from the Washington Post, as dozens of cruise missiles laid waste to a Syrian military airfield late Thursday, MSNBC's Brian Williams took a moment to wax poetic. All evening, MSNBC and other news networks have been playing a reel of footage of the assault, which President Trump authorized in retaliation for a chemical attack that killed more than 70 civilians this week. The footage provided by the Pentagon showed several Tomahawk missiles launching from U.S. Navy destroyers in the Mediterranean Sea, illuminating the decks of the ships and leaving long trails of smoke in the night sky. Mm, like the 4th of July. Like the 4th of beautiful, July. Beautiful, beautiful. Born on the 4th of July. That way the Syrians can play baseball under the lights of the cruise missiles yeah. flying in the sky. I've seen in Sandlot where they play under the lights one night game of year, a year, and it's uh, on the 4th of July because there's so many fireworks in the sky they can play at night because the Got field it. is lit up. So the, the Post article goes on, it was a sight that seemed to dazzle Williams, who described the images as quote-unquote beautiful, in a segment on his show, The 11th Hour, and he said, We see these beautiful pictures at night from the decks of these two U.S. Navy vessels in the eastern Mediterranean, um, and they are beautiful pictures of, uh, of fearsome armaments making what is for them a brief flight over to this airfield. I am tempted to quote the great Leonard Cohen. I'm guided by the beauty of our weapons. Videos of missiles are like Viagra to this guy. I, seriously, right? Major boner. <laughs> it's really weird. And also, like, again, people really don't get irony in music. So Leonard Cohen was not actually, I don't think, waxing poetic about weapons. I'm guided by the beauty of our weapons. Then we take I think there was right. some irony. I don't know. But it's also like, right. he could have done Hallelujah. What other Leonard Cohen? Suzanne? I'm just trying to think of what other Leonard Cohen songs would work. Everybody Knows. Everybody Knows. Yeah, also yeah. in the Natural Born Killer soundtrack. Look at that. Yeah. Bringing it back in. Yeah. yeah. It's just been very weird because, like, what's, what's, what I find strange is that, like, cable news, Usually they like to they like to create like manufacture conflict, mm -hmm. you know. So you would you would think like the the playbook would be okay. Let's just get someone who's like pro war, and then we'll get someone who's anti war, and then we'll have them duke it out, and then you know that would be fun. But they don't even do that. Like it's like they have someone who's like slightly pro war, and then someone who is like you know getting a, a raging hard on uh, over war. Like that's the that's the level of debate. They they never have sort of defense, dissenting voices on the left. That would just be, that is completely unacceptable. They might have, like, some fringe, like, far-right guy who would be, like, against the intervention on, you know, I don't know, like, extreme America first isolationist grounds. 
but never kind of an anti-war left person would never be able to make it onto the mainstream media. It's very, very strange to see. And has anyone well, come out and been at all, like, offered a dissenting opinion at all? Certainly not on, like, mainstream cable news or, or like, in the New York Times, really. But what I, what I do see is, like, the reporting out of Syria or the information that we get out of Syria has, has always been very, very uh, unreliable in many ways. There's just, there's just not that many journalists on the ground. There's certainly not that many independent journalists on the ground. So it's, it's very hard to, to get actual accurate information from, from what's going on on the ground. But what, what we do see, I think, a lot in the media is this, a, this, this dynamic where we try to create like a very simple good guys versus bad guys narrative. And we do that with every conflict there is. It's just like the easy thing to do. The Syria conflict just strikes me as way more complicated than that. I don't know if you guys saw that there was this suicide bomb attack where like about 100 Shia were killed uh, as they were being evacuated from from Aleppo. And like, I think the way you saw the media report that, and if you're kind of an average um, news consumer, you would have you would have taken away that it was probably the Assad regime who just killed all these people. But like, if you if you read if you read it closely, it, that's actually not clear at all. Hmm. Um, you know, but there but there's this there's this narrative emerging where like all the bad stuff that happened comes from one side and, and none of the bad stuff that happens comes from the other side. And I think that the Syrian conflict is way more complicated than that. And that's just part of the whole drumbeat where, we, you know, we, we create these kind of cartoon villains and then we create these sort of token, like, heroic good guys, right? These, like, sort of, like, hapless victims or... And that's, we, that's something that we see over and over and over again, regardless of what conflict we're talking about. But it's, it's, it's not often like that. In terms of the, the Syria stuff, I mean, there's a huge debate, right, about how good or bad Assad is. And it seems to me that's a kind of moot point. Like, we all think he's bad, I think. But the other question is, okay, let's say he's really bad, which he is. What do we do, right? And I don't know why the left is kind of wringing its hands over, like, whether he's a 10 or an 11 on a scale from 1 to 10 of, right. of evil. Yeah. Um, it, I mean, it, it's an interesting exercise and debate, but should, I, I guess it's just like there's so many things we could debate that actually have policy outcomes. Do most... do? Who, who are the people besides the... That's what I never understand. Well, I mean, the people who love Assad are kind of like alt-right people. I mean, there's you're starting to see some like uh, some like alt-right people sort of defending uh, Assad and just saying that he's actually good. I, I don't see that. I don't think that anyone on the left is doing that. I think that the... And that's what I don't understand about sort of the, 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 the really hardcore anti-Assad factions on the left. Like, I don't quite understand what they... What they propose to do about it right. because do they like because that's what I always ask and I, I never get a quite a, a clear answer because I mean at the end of the day you know we have the American military machine that's the one we got you know so any sort of military intervention has to be seen through that lens uh, you know it's not like we're going to get some sort of other military to do it and then at the head of the American military machine is Donald Trump and like do we really trust him to do right. anything right. Um does, how much Properly, does, right? How does this kind of change the game in terms of the narrative that he is in cahoots with Russia? I mean, do you think that he is to some extent coordinated with Russia, but here's an example of his wanting to distract from... Like, was this something that you expected from Trump? Because I have to be honest, I didn't expect it really. I thought that he was going to be a kind of isolationist in an evil way, although then he had really hawkish people in his administration, so maybe that's not fair. But what are your... What are your thoughts on, on that and why he's doing it and how out of character it was? Well, I think that Trump is basically like a big time dummy and that just easily manipulable. Right. So I thought I always thought it was a kind of a matter of time before the, the, the sort of blob just kind of figured out how to trick him into doing all the horrible shit they've always wanted to do. 
right? So, like, you know, it's as easy as, like, saying, like, when we were saw the reporting out of the, the first Yemen raid that went so bad, you know, the generals basically told, like, or the national security establishment basically told them, yo, Obama would never have done this. Like, you want to do it? Like, you, you know, you'll be, you'll be seen as stronger than Obama. And then, like, that's as easy as, as that to, to get him to approve, um, you know, that raid. So I think with, this, the, with something like this serious thing, like, something happens, and then they tell him, like, you know, Obama was weak with the red mm. line in 2013. You want to be seen as weak, and then he'll just say he'll just agree to whatever whatever they put in front of him. Um, I never I, I never thought that he was actually going to be able to stand up to a lot of the, the sort of power structures, and we and we've seen him like just bend right away to uh, you know Wall Street, and now it looks like the foreign policy establishment, which is just like you know pearl war all the time in every country always. I'm not terribly shocked by that. We already think Bannon being, being Steve Bannon, who seemed like the guy that was like more kind of opposed to that, to those power structures being kicked out. Mm. Have we seen an example since World War II of our intervening for good in any conflict? Well, the one that people point to a lot is uh, is uh, Bosnia and like right. you know, Kosovo and, and things like that as like a sort of limited engagement that sort of stopped a lot of atrocities and uh, brought about a peace. I mean, although the, there was a lot of horrible shit that went on. Sorry, I'm not going to say that. That's a lot of horrible stuff that went on there as well. But that's kind of the, the, the if you were to maybe point to one that maybe wasn't too, so terrible, it would be that one. Although Yugoslavia, the former Yugoslavia was utterly destroyed by that war. Um, but you do see like a modicum of peace now and you don't see like the same kind of violence that that you used to but uh that's just kind of the one and and i mean i i, I don't know you could you could talk about a million reasons why that one maybe was slightly more effective than than say the iraq intervention or afghanistan or whatever and, and i think a lot of it has to do with the fact that it's a, just a, a region of the world you know europe in general is a region of the world where we have a lot more understanding and are able to kind of have much a, a more nuanced understanding of what's, of what's going on on the ground. Whereas, you know, in Afghanistan and Iraq, these people have no idea what the hell's going on. Ain't that the truth? Literally everything else is like an unqualified disaster. And I'm not even convinced that the, that the Bosnia intervention wasn't, you know, on, on, on the whole bad, but it just right. wasn't as, it wasn't as, as ethically disastrous as, you know, all the other ones. Right. Well, we, I, I, I know someone named um, Ivan Marovic, who was in Otpor, which was like one of the major anti Slobodan Milosevic organizations that kind of overthrew him. And I remember asking him about the intervention, the U.S. intervention. And he was like, look, I was someone who risked my life to overthrow Milosevic. And I have to say, when I saw the U.S. bombing our country, I was like, wow, Milosevic isn't that bad of a guy. Like, go Milosevic. So, it can create this, camp, yeah. the, you know, like it can create an enemy. Uh, what is it? Like a, like a bigger bully? Yeah. Which yeah. is something to think about. I'm always skeptical of uh, anybody that we're backing mm. to topple another country. So if we are backing uh, insurgents, uh, they're, they're rarely um, uh, looking to create a more progressive society. Yes. That's I, exactly right. I think we, we, tend to, we tend to back the most, uh, uh, you know, autocratic, authoritarian factions in in any conflict i mean it's rare that we've you know uh backed sort of a, a liberation army of the left that was progressive or whatever we usually we usually back uh you know bullish and thuggish death squads i mean that was you know latin america uh you know uh afghanistan all, all over the place we've done we've, that, that was that's been the playbook um so yeah i think you're right to be skeptical about that game 
Hooray! Some healthy skepticism on the on Gabe's part. Yeah. Um. Yeah, that's true. All you need to do whenever anyone sa- claims that like the United States acts for the sake of democracy and human rights, all you got to do is point to Latin America. Thank God for Latin America. Yeah. So yeah, I I tweeted this the other day and it got some love, which was like people supporting military action against Syria should be able to explain how it will help Syrian civilians. Quote Assad is evil. End quote doesn't count. Which is, I guess, I'm just like, yeah, what are you... Fine, he's evil, and now what? Because I don't think most people on right. the left and, actually want and, intervention. And, and, and until, we, until we defeat Trump, like, can we even, can we even have a prayer of, hope, of, of hoping that he would do anything uh, right. effectively or humanely or carefully or with restraint? Uh, any of those things that you would hope any sort of military intervention would have um, as a matter of last resort, like... That, that just strikes me as, as, as a completely insane position right, to have, right, to, right. to sort of advocate for intervention with um, divorcing it from the context of Donald Trump as president. Right. So uh, we can't trust the coach of the home team. Right. Who happens you know, to like, be? Even if, like, if, even if, like, it's just hard to, like, you know, make comparisons, but, like, like even the most extreme cases, you would you would still think that that Trump would screw it up and make it worse. Right. Well, it's Donald Trump we're talking about, right? Right. That's Trump, the thing. It's, if he's he if he's a Nazi, Cheeto, whatever, what else? What what do they call him? Cheeto face Nazi, um, Hitler, yeah. whatever, Mussolini. How is it that all of a sudden we agree with his take and his policies? Of course, there are times when you overlap, right? Like. Uh, Bernie and Trump being anti-CBP, but this is kind of a thing, like, if he's a megalomaniac, we probably don't want him in charge of a war. Even if, in theory, which I don't, I don't think the three of us do, but even if, in theory, we thought it'd be a good idea, we probably wouldn't want him to be the one doing it, right? You'd think, like, okay, let's sit this one out. Right, exactly. You know, he's a really, really, I can just imagine him, really, really bad guy, really, really, really... Assad's a really, really bad yeah. guy. Not a good guy. Bad terrible hombre. guy. Terrible guy. Terrible. Terrible. The worst. Well, thank you so much, Nando, and we'll have to have you back on the show. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows the fight was fixed. The poor stay poor. The rich get rich. That's how it goes. Everybody knows. So glad to be chatting with Ben Norton, who is a journalist Writes all around the world, really. But um, now he's a staff journalist at Alternet for the Gray Zone. So we wanted to focus, though, today on what uh, Donald Trump has been saying and doing about Syria. Yeah, so the Trump administration has done a complete turnabout 180. Originally, during his campaign, Trump had implied that he might pursue a less hawkish foreign policy, although he was certainly inconsistent. And you could certainly find statements in which he said, well, you know, we should have permanently occupied Iraq, etc. So it's not necessarily a big surprise. And of course, he's a complete hypocrite. So surprise there. In Syria, he's been really ramping up things and escalating. Of course, in North Korea, the U.S. has been saber rattling a lot. And that is that's very dangerous. But in the Middle East, we've seen this a bit more. Also in South Asia and Afghanistan, last week, the Trump administration dropped the largest non-nuclear bomb that it has in an area in eastern Afghanistan on the border with Pakistan. And the bomb is called Moab, or mother of all bombs. That was just one example. Also, the Trump administration on April 6th bombed the Syrian government. The U.S. immediately claimed that after an alleged chemical weapons attack on April 4th, the Syrian government was responsible. They jumped to conclusions that didn't have any solid evidence. And then several days later, 
it released a so-called intelligence report that is very, very short. It's four pages and provides no solid evidence. And recently, uh, in the past week, an, an MIT professor, Theodore Postel, who's a an arms expert, he actually previously served as an advisor to the Department of Defense. He accused the White House of releasing a politicized report that is not scientific, and he called into question the claims they made. There was an alternate, Theodore Postel, a professor of science, technology, and international security at MIT, said the so-called White House intelligence report issued on April 11th is totally inconsistent with the claims it's making. I'm not so much saying that I know what happened because actually I don't. What I know, I do know is that this report was to be blunt fabricated without the intelligence methodologies that it claims to have used because I have data that I've been pouring over. For example, there's video data of this crater that they allege was the source of an air attack and air munitions. It was not an air munition. You could see that very easily. And according to him, it looks like it was carried out on the ground and it could have been extremists in Idlib, in the Idlib province of Syria, where the attack took place, which is under the control of Al-Qaeda and some of its extremist allies. And then another expert, Phyllis Bennis, director of the New Internationalism Project at the Institute for Policy Studies. Bennis says the Syrian government may well be responsible for the attack or others may have been involved, but without an independent international investigation, we simply don't know. That means the Organization yeah. for the Prevention of Chemical Weapons must be given a full and complete and open mandate to follow all leads and report fully. So there's been a lot of misinformation going on, but of course, Trump administration has instead been rationing things up, saber rattling making uh, indications that regime change is back on the table. And a lot of people are on, on board with that. In fact, there's been a kind of rehabilitation of Trump, like, like we've seen in recent weeks in the media with George W. Bush, who's now apparently woke. And a feminist. And, uh, you have, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, it goes out without saying that he's a right. feminist. So we have all these media outlets talking about how cute George Bush is, a war criminal who invaded a, a country illegally and, and fueled a war that led to one million deaths because he's a nice painter. Um, and actually we're seeing actively uh, the whitewashing of Trump that's been going on and the attempt to portray him as a moderate. Uh, there have been all these pundits going on and they're discussing how Trump is now finally acting presidential, by which they mean he's bombing foreign countries. It's very dangerous and it's unfortunately not new. The US of course has a history of politicizing and fabricating so-called intelligence the most infamous example is, of course, the weapons of mass destruction lie, which was used to sell the illegal invasion of Iraq, which was happily peddled by mainstream media outlets. But even before that, it's certainly not new. Uh, there's the Gulf of Tonkin incident. You get on the list. As so, in Vietnam. Uh, yes. And then there's like the accusation that was later proved to be false, that the Iraqi military was taking babies Mm. out of incubators in Kuwait in order to kill them. And that lie was spread by the daughter of the Kuwaiti ambassador and parroted by media outlets. So unfortunately, it looks like we may be living through a similar time right now. And both Republicans and our favorite liberal hawks in the Democratic Party, who have uh, backed every single war in the past 30 years and continue to do they only continue to do so today. today. And uh, unfortunately, a few things have changed. Who are some of the gems who stand out for their hawkishness? Oh, the best. <laughs> All right, some of the best. Here we go, like, top five. Yeah. Uh, Thomas Friedman, everyone's favorite columnist, who begins half of his columns at the New York Times with the word so. Oh, my God, it's such a good call. <laughs> such a good observation, yeah. He begins the other half of columns with anecdotes about his most recent taxi driver, 
telling him some deep philosophical anecdote. About Muslims, right? Or the Christian world <laughs> uh, or whatever. Always, naturally. Yeah. So Friedman took a step further, and not only did he call for regime change in Syria after applauding Trump's attack, he even insisted that the U.S. should consider partitioning Syria on ethnic and, and uh, religious sectarian Oh, my lines, God, that's such a good idea. Can, like India, oh, Pakistan. It, it was so, so great. Well. Exactly. And they love each other now. Yeah, love. So Nothing but love. Between the two. Love fest. Not only that, actually, Tom Friedman insisted that the U.S. should stop being concerned with ISIS and they should actually just allow ISIS to continue fighting Syria and Iran because it's weakening them and they're our enemies. And then he also insisted the U.S. should pour more arms into Syria, which led to the problem we're facing now and led to the arming of Al-Qaeda. So that's woke Tom Friedman. Anne-Marie Slaughter, the aptly named Anne-Marie Slaughter, also applauded Trump's bombing. Anne-Marie Slaughter, for those who don't know, directed policy for the State Department under Hillary Clinton in the first term of the Obama administration. She was uh, a professor at Princeton who now directs a think tank in D.C., and she's a liberal humanitarian figure. She applauded the Trump administration's bombing, just like she did for Libya. And there's no discussion of the complete chaos that Libya has been in, even though there have been recent reports in the last week about how now, after NATO liberated Libya in 2011 and carried out a regime change operation, supposedly for humanitarian reasons, today there are human beings being sold as slaves. There are African migrants and refugees being traded in open slave markets in Libya today. And now all of these hawks are calling for Trump to do the same and to bravely lead the way for more regime change in Syria. Isn't that just free market slavery? <laughs> no, exactly. And what was funny is I actually wrote an article looking at all these pundits who, who sold NATO regime change in Libya and are now calling for the same in Syria. And Friedman lamented in a column in 2011 that Libya does not have free markets. And he said, we need to bring freedom to them and bring them free markets. And he said, we need to bring the Arabs into the modern day. It was very orientalist. Yeah, well, you've got to start with slavery. I, I, I joked in my article, I was like, yeah, well, now Libya has free markets of, of a different kind, free markets for human shadow slavery. Right. Free markets, not such free people. Okay, so Thomas Friedman, who, by the way, when you call him a columnist, I thought you called him a colonist. But so Thomas Friedman is one of the worst. Oh, uh, well, I mentioned Anne-Marie Slaughter. Oh, Anne-Marie Slaughter, um, right. A few others. There are, of course, the neoconservatives who are always very excited and aroused when there's a possibility for a new war. So Brett Stevens, the extreme anti-Palestinian bigot, another neoconservative, he was previously at the Wall Street Journal, who is now a new columnist at the New York Times. He plotted the Trump administration's attack on Syria. This is a, um, a guy who several years ago when Israel was bombing Gaza insisted that, quote, Palestine makes you dumb. That was the headline he wrote for a column at the Wall Street Journal. And he also claimed that if you side with Palestinians, you're siding with barbarism, is the term he used. He also vociferously defended the nuclear bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And now he is going to be a revered columnist at the New York Times. And he's going to spew his opinion for a six-figure income. So there you go. Joining Tom Friedman and also, of course, uh, joining the ranks of former journalist, New York Times journalist, Judith Friedman. I mean, Judith Miller, sorry. <laughs> exactly. Like an Miller, who, for those who know, helped sell the weapons of mass destruction right. lie. And, of course, if we're going to mention the triumvirate of New York Times columnists who love war, Friedman, uh, Stevens, and then also Nicholas Kristof. 
of the three, Nicholas Kristof, he has the connotations of being a supposed progressive. Right. But in reality, he is a progressive who is a cruise missile liberal and supports every war. And he joins the list of the ignomious columnists who happily applauded as NATO overthrew the Libyan government in 2011 and likewise is now praising the Trump administration for carrying out an attack in Syria. Wait, so how many people did you name so far? Sorry, Thomas Friedman, Slaughter, Christoph. Stevens, uh, there are a few more. We need um, one more. It could be a politician. Uh, I mean, it could be Brian Williams, let's but that's go with easy. Hillary, let's go with Hillary Clinton. Yeah, what'd so she say? This is actually even better. Hillary Clinton called for uh, the Trump administration to carry out airstrikes on the Syrian government like two hours before it did. Hillary Clinton actually presaged what Trump did. So uh, that that is it's remarkable. We have to admire her, her future-telling abilities. I do, personally. Mm. So the entire commentariat, uh, whether they be Republican or Democrat, is pretty much on board now, and Trump is actually kind of woke because he's bombing foreign countries, and if only he did that earlier, he wouldn't have been so unpopular. I tweeted out, what are the best um, responses to Syria? And of course, let's see what I got. Um, worst responses to Syria from politicians, journos, and Jérôme Dustridon, I don't know who that is, wrote Rania Kalik, <laughs> Ben Norton, Max Blumenthal posing as left. Then someone named Haltan said, she said worse, not informative and unbiased. Then Jerome came back with a genocide denial qualifies quite well as worst. In Europe, it's a crime. And then um, Haltam came back with, when and where exactly did either of them deny genocide? And then Jerome says, you've been invisibilizing Assad's brutal violence. Don't be disingenuous. Are you an Assadist? No, this is a ridiculous smear. I do not support Bashar al-Assad. I can't, I don't know how many times I have to preface by saying this. It's absurd. This is the same smear people used during the lead up to the Iraq war, where if you oppose regime change in Iraq, you were smeared as a supporter of Saddam Hussein. If you called out the lies being spread uh, for political reasons by the U.S. government that were not based on true intelligence, you were smeared as a Saddam apologist. Except isn't that no, worse now? I feel like it's actually worse. Like, I feel like fewer people, less people were smeared as, as Saddamist than are as Assadist. It's worse now because the Democratic Party is entirely on board. I mean, of mm. course, there were segments of the Democratic Party, absolutely, including the leaders who were on board with invading Iraq, including Hillary Clinton. But now there is no one in the Democratic Party who's not on board. Really? Except for Tulsi Gabbard, who unfortunately, unfortunately, Tulsi Gabbard has some other really bad I know. Reasons. I guess it just doesn't seem that weird to me that you can think that Assad is really bad and that other people are worse and or that Assad is really bad and the U.S. should not intervene. Like, I just don't think that that's that deep a contradiction. Not at all. Yeah. And I think the most important position that we can take, and, and I would argue the correct position is, yes, Assad is a repressive leader. Yes, the Syrian government is a police state. Yes, uh, the rebels are dominated by al-Qaeda and hardline extremists who have already ethnically cleansed religious and ethnic minorities from the areas they control. Uh, and if the government were to be overthrown, it would be Syria would be plunged into complete turmoil. Extremists like Al Qaeda and its allies would uh, carry out horrific acts of violence against civilians, like ISIS has done against the Yazidis and others. And the country would be in complete chaos, just like Libya is now. You can accept all of those things simultaneously, and you can also accept the fact that. 
yes, the Syrian government is repressive, like every other government in the region, and the U.S. is allied with countries that are significantly more repressive and brutal, such as Saudi Arabia, which is a theocratic absolute monarchy, but of course the U.S. has no problem with its crimes, right. and the U.S. does uh, billions and billions of dollars of arms deals with it, and, and of course uh, uh, Saudi Arabia is the second largest uh, oil nation in the world, which controls OPEC and the price of oil in the global market. So there are many layers of hypocrisy, but saying that someone is an Assadist and supposedly supports Assad because they oppose regime change is just a, a baseless smear. So you condemn Assad and condemn the intervention. Doesn't seem like that weird of a thing, right? Just like in 2003, anti-war voices condemned Saddam Hussein and condemned the illegal U.S. invasion that plunged that country into absolute catastrophe from which the region is still trying to recover. I mean, it's, it is very weird because I, th I don't get why the left is. I mean, I feel like people really want people to say that that Assad is worse than other people. That's a fine debate to have. But what is the isn't the, the point is, what is the policy? Right. There are tons of evil. No, people. Exactly. These people try to have their cake and eat it, too. So they'll say things like neither Washington nor Moscow, neither Moscow nor NATO or whatever the saying is. But they're Americans. Their responsibility is to oppose their government's aggression. Their responsibility is to oppose regime change, which has completely destabilized the region repeatedly. Their responsibility as citizens of a supposed democracy is to hold their government accountable. And instead, they're spending all their time attacking anti-war voices. Right. And ultimately, they're helping fuel the, the pro-war voices, even if they claim that they oppose intervention. Well, Ben, thank you so much. I'm glad that we got it um, cleared up that you are not an Assadist. Next time, we'll go through all the other dictators who you don't support, even though you probably don't support uh, a U.S. bombing campaign of them. Yeah. When, when, is, when are we going to just sit, like, sit and begin every statement by condemning every dictator on the planet? We should, right? All right. Well, thank you so much, Ben. And Ben, Benjamin Norton on Twitter. Great friend of the show. And next time he's going to come on and we'll have him in studio. Yeah, I would love to. Great. Thanks for having me on. Thank Talk you. Great. Bye. Now I've heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord. But you don't really care for music, do you? It goes like this. The fourth the fifth, the minor fall, the major lift, the baffled king composing hallelujah. Kalik joining us today on the Katie Helper Show. We've been trying to have Rania back. She's done the show a few times. She did one of our early live shows. Rania Kalik is a journalist. She used to be an editor at Electronic Intifada, and she does a lot of reporting, including from War Zones. And she writes for places like The Intercept and Alternate and Fair. And um, we wanted to talk to Rania because she's Rania's story is kind of meta because she's both talking about what's happening in Syria, but she also is kind of a an example 
of the politics around not just Syria, but the politics around reporting on Syria. Rania is, is going to Syria tomorrow? Well, I'm going to the Middle East tomorrow. I'll be in Syria in a few weeks. Okay, so tell can you first of all yeah. tell us about your how did, how did you first get involved in in Syria? Why Syria? Why are you covering Syria? What's your relationship with this with this place called Syria? Well, that's a great question. That's a great question. Um, Syria is well. So my family is Lebanese. I also have family in Syria, and you know there's been this war going on in Syria for several years, and I've mostly not like publicly talked about it much because I've been more focused on reporting on Israel-Palestine. And also Syria, just like, is, uh, it's like a cess, like if you stepping in it is, uh, gets you in a lot of controversy. Like if you take a position on anything, Syria is such a controversial topic. So wait, is Israel-Palestine like like the easy topic compared to Syria? Is that like a walk through the park? Yes. Shockingly, yes. I thought Israel-Palestine was probably one of the most, like if anything gets you blacklisted, right? It's like being pro-Palestine. But these days it's like, Syria has become this third, third rail where you're not even allowed to actually talk about what's happening in that country. But uh, Hillary Clinton was running for president. You might remember, Katie. Mm-hmm. And um, she was promising that she was going to impose a no-fly zone on Syria. And that would have been disastrous. And I was, I mean, I, like everybody else, I assumed she was going to win. Um, it's kind of shocking anybody lost to Donald Trump, but that's another story right. for another day. The point is, is I thought she was going to be president, so I had the opportunity to go to Syria, and I went. Um, because I wanted to report from there because I feel like a lot of the reporting in this country, I don't feel I know a lot of the reporting in this country is complete BS. It's like it's like the me- media in this country has painted uh, or manufactured, I should say, a, a completely alternate reality that bears no resemblance whatsoever to what's actually happening on the ground in Syria. It's shocking. Um, and I, I say that as somebody who was covering Israel-Palestine, I mean, I, I say this, I mean it. Syria is the most poorly reported on conflict I've ever seen. And um, it's only gotten worse since then. And that's why I went. I went because of that. I have family there. And so, like, I I guess I have some skin in the game with Syria. But also, our country, and this is what you're not allowed to say, is the U.S. for the past several years has been arming and funding um, rebels, rebels in Syria that are linked to or are al-Qaeda. That's shocking and should be on the front page of every single newspaper in this country. But instead, you're not even allowed to talk about that. I mean, even progressive outlets don't touch on this topic. It's insane. Um, I thought al-Qaeda was bad. Yeah. <laughs> like, you I thought, was really that 9-11 was really bad. Right. <laughs> yeah. So that's like, I mean, that's what's really, that was what really pushed me into theory coverage is like, I, like one, I feel like the U.S. is um, creating problems for itself. Like, we're arming people who eventually will attack America. They're already attacking Western capitals. Um, and nobody seems to care. Uh, beyond that, we're just, we've destroyed Syria. I mean, we have like, say what you want about the Syrian government. It, this is not about defending the Syrian government. It's just the fact that like the U.S. armed terrorists in Syria. I mean, imagine if that happened here. If people were arming, if like Russia and China were arming like Al-Qaeda and like, I don't know, anybody else who would just, you know, was like blowing up buildings and, you know, killing minorities. That's what he did in Syria. Right. And that to me means like is important because I have family in Syria and they're minorities. So like I care on a personal level as well. Can you talk a bit about what it means to be a minority under uh, Assad versus under what the government would look like if the rebels were to succeed? So if the rebels were to succeed, they like in toppling the government, it would look like Libya, which is just a bunch of different warlord factions, like meaning like ISIS, al- some Al-Qaeda, some, you know, just other kind of sectarian groups, Muslim Brotherhood. Either way, it would just be a bunch of different sectarian group factions 
uh, you know, taking charge of different areas of the country. And it would be, it would be terrible for minorities. Minorities right now, right now in the Middle East, I mean, there's a serious problem going on with ISIS and other groups like it, which is this sectarian ideology that's basically pushed by Saudi Arabia that espouses um, like extermination of minorities, extermination of all non-Sunnis, and including Sunnis actually, extermination of anybody who doesn't abide by like Wahhabi style ideology. Um, that's what Al-Qaeda has been doing in Syria and in Iraq. And that's what ISIS does in Syria and Iraq. And that's what would take over the country. So, you know, everybody wants to make this about like this, like this war, this one-sided war between this evil government and like people who just want freedom. But in reality, 75% of Syrians, more actually now that Aleppo has been taken back by the government, live in government areas. And that's, all, that's the vast majority of the country. Um, and they live in government areas. Nobody wants to admit this, but you go to Syria, there is support for the government, whether you like it or not. But even among people who don't really support the government, um, they still support the government winning this war. Because to them, it's a war between like a, a functioning state <laughs> you know, that like offers some sense of like some semblance of stability versus utter like chaos and and, you know, just complete like collapse, state collapse where you just have, like I said, different armed factions running different parts of the country where no one is safe and everybody reverts to like identity and tribal you know, tribal identity. And it becomes like a fight like we saw in Iraq between Shia and Sunni. The issue is, do we think an intervention would help civilians in Syria? And from what I can tell, I don't even think most leftists, some of whom are really enjoying attacking you as an Assadist, I don't think that most of them are for intervening either. It seems like it's this very moral discussion kind of separated from U.S. foreign policy. Um, you would know this more than I would. But getting rid of a, uh, an oppressive but stable government to open up the, the country to an oppressive but unstable government, let's say. But it's a complicated issue, right? Like, it's like you do have a government that's being brutal, but yeah, like, so then the question becomes, should we be arming al-Qaeda in every country so that they can overthrow the government? And is that actually going to help the people that we want to help? And that is what bothers me about what leftists think about Syria. Because the conversation ends up being this thing about moral, like, you know, uh, moral posturing. Instead of, hey, why are we talking about the fact that our government's been arming al-Qaeda groups? Like, I feel like as a left, we should be demanding that stop immediately. Right. And do do leftists who would disagree with you actually want us to be intervened? I mean, I'm sure there's a variety, but do do they want intervention or do they just want you to declare that Assad is, I mean, I don't know what they're asking you to do. Because how many times have you condemned Assad? I mean, I've done it. Like, I used to do it all the time, but you know what? It doesn't matter if you do. At this point, to me, it's meaningless to condemn Assad because I kind of care about what our, our country is the one that prolonged conflict and wasting all my time condemning Assad is just less time talking about what's actually happening. And that to me, the people who are demanding that all the time, I mean, some of them are leftists, but mostly they're people who want intervention. And that's, that's the thing that's really disturbing about Syria is the level of propaganda that exists around this issue and the level of money that's been spent on just like obscuring what's happening in Syria and trying to split the anti-war left, it worked. I mean, there's like no anti-war movement when it comes to Syria at all. Because in the same, it was the same with Libya, because we just, they, like, you know, the people who make war were able to spin it as this, like, we're just supporting an uprising of people Right, who a want popular freedom. uprising, right. To be fair, like, yeah, there were protests in Syria, but one thing that you don't hear about is that they were mixed. Like, think about the U.S., the Occupy Wall Street protests and the Tea Party protests right. happened around the same time. In Syria, there was protests by conservatives and there was protests by, like, liberal-minded people 
who like are like you and I, you know, who just like wanted basic reforms. And those were in the more urban areas. In the more conservative areas, people who were protesting were demanding things like gender segregation in schools. They were demanding things like, uh, you know, wearing the burqa while they teach. Or, I mean, these are also, this is like also a segment of the uprising. And that's the part of it that got armed. That's the part of it that America armed. America doesn't arm leftists. Like, right. it's not a thing. America right. almost always arms the fascists. It's not our look. Yeah. So, it's off brand yeah. for us. Yeah. The thing is, like in Syria, there are, there, there is like, there are people who are reform minded and want reform. And they will, like, they are pushing for those things. And they're actually getting a little bit more freedom to do that because of the conditions right now. Um, but those people you never hear from, their actual opposition inside Syria that exists that isn't armed, you don't get to hear from them because they're just all Assadists. Like, we're supposed to just ignore the majority of the country and pretend like they don't matter. And it's okay to overthrow their government and destroy their lives. For what? So ISIS and al-Qaeda can declare a state? It's just so absurd to me. There's no comparison. And I see people do this all the time. People will say, especially on the left, and this really bothers me, they'll say, they'll say Assad is, uh, like, ISIS, ISIS is a lesser evil. Or they'll say ISIS and Assad are the same. That is not even remotely true. Like, I, if I were to live under ISIS, if they let me live, I would be enslavable or I would be killable. I mean, it's like one or the other because of my identity. Right. So don't tell me that. And don't tell me, like, unless you're a Salafi male, like, you can't tell me that ISIS is a lesser evil. It's just not accurate. That's crazy. I mean, how much and of this is... A, I mean, yeah, keep going. Sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, go I ahead. mean, how much is... This, I feel like so much of this is this weird, like, pushback against, like, annoyance with... Like, there's an annoyance with leftists who make excuses for secular people. But again, like... I just don't think it's that crazy. Like, I, we didn't like Saddam Hussein, and we still were against the war. Like, we were still against yeah. intervening. And we still would say it was better then. Like, it was comparable. It was a police state, right? It's not like it was, a, it was a great... Like, neither of us would like to live under that. But again, we'd also probably prefer that to what followed. Um, but anyway, so I want to know yeah. about, like, your... Uh, what was it like when you were there, by the way? If you could just describe it, like, what's it like there? I mean, it, it, it depends where you are. Like in Damascus, things were, were relatively normal. You couldn't really tell there was a war going on. In like two years ago, Damascus was really, really bad, but it's been pretty much secured uh, by the government. Obviously, there's still like suicide bombings every once in a while, which is terrible. And by the way, when there are those suicide bombings by Al-Qaeda, the headlines in the New York Times will literally say, Syrian rebels launch offensive against residents in Damascus. Like, it's wild. When that shit happens, excuse me, I just cursed. No, okay. I'll just, no. When that when that when that stuff happens in Paris or like or like Israel, even everyone's like terrorist attack, terrorist attack. It happens in Syria, and it's like rebels launched an offensive. It's right. wild. Right. But um. But anyways, Damascus is relatively normal, as normal as it can be under the conditions. Like, it's cleaner than Beirut. <laughs> um, right. And what are the things that no, we do what, know that like that Assad has done that's bad? I just want, I want, what? what are the things that we know that Assad has done that are bad as opposed to the things that people have said he's done? For instance, like there were things that Saddam Hussein did that were bad, right? But he happened to not do the thing pulling out, um, what was the thing that he said he did with babies? Who, who pulled out babies? Oh, the, oh, the uh, pulling, like having Iraqi soldiers uh, throw premature babies yeah, like yeah, out of incubators, yeah. which was a totally manufactured story right. to try and push right. America exactly. into like right. invading Iraq. Yeah. I mean, I guess I think it is important for people like you and people like Ben and Max to, and me, if, there, if I were more knowledgeable about it, but I always think it is really useful to be like, look, there is bad shit done by this person. 
and there is bad shit done by these other people. And let's not pretend that it's like good versus evil. And let's also not pretend that, sorry, this is, this is, I think what it comes down to a lot. And this is what I think some people on the left don't like. And cause they're like, they're like cultural relativists or something. It's like, look, if I have to have a bad government that's secular or a bad government that's religious, I'm going to go with the bad <laughs> one that's secular. Always. Is that, un- Always. I think it's unwoke. Everybody... I think that's considered and, unwoke. And... Well, you know, what bothers me about this, too, is, like, is there's, okay, so there's this weird thing happening where in America, Islamophobia is really bad right now. Obviously, you've got Trump, like, trying to ban Muslims, and people try and project that onto the Middle East in a way that it does not fit. Um, They just, they think that people, like, they they think it's Islamophobic. Like, I've been called Islamophobic for saying Al-Qaeda is driven by ideology and not by foreign policy grievances mm-hmm. and people are like people lose their minds when you say that and it makes no sense it's like, probably no, a they're, combo right they're, like, they're, they exacerbate each other they have i mean they have foreign policy grievances but like al-qaeda also is mostly like, al-qaeda look my family has foreign policy grievances they didn't they don't knock down towers sure, like, right. al-qaeda is driven by a very a, a saudi ideology like saudi arabia's wahhabism drives al-qaeda um to a great degree and there are a lot of people, again, like, it's like Al-Qaeda isn't just attacking the West. Al-Qaeda also kills minorities in the Middle East. And Muslims, are they doing that Muslims, because of right? foreign policy right. grievances? Right. They kill Muslim minorities. Right. Like, I mean, I think what happens and, is, like you and I were saying, when there is stuff like bombing civilians, that will make radical, that radicalizes that many more people, right? But yeah, like you're saying, there is, what the question is what they were, are radicalized to. But no, but like, Katie, I actually, I would challenge that. Yes, okay, yes, like, it gives recruiting, it gives recruiting material to Al-Qaeda, but at the end of the day, it's ideology because look at Iraq. Iraq is a country that's majority Shia. Mm-hmm. Al-Qaeda in Iraq is Sunni. Like, it's like it, it, it takes from it, like recruits from like Sunni, the Sunni population, using an ideology. Like, the Shia in Iraq also have foreign policy grievances. They've been blown up by U.S. bombs as well. Right. So there is, like, what's happening in the Middle East, and people don't understand this, and I don't blame them for not understanding it, the Middle East is at, is at war with itself. Muslims are at war with themselves. Arabs are at war with themselves, unfortunately. And, you know, to say that is not to be Islamophobic. It's to talk, it's to right. speak reality. Saudi Arabia is spreading an ideology across the region that is violently imposing itself. And it also is changing the way that people act. And these like people, I mean, I, I got to tell you, like, there's cities that have, that because they've been influenced, like Saudi Arabia builds these massive uh, Salafi Wahhabi mosques and a generation later like or years just a few years later like the Muslim population that Saudi Arabia tries to change into its image changes starts to change into its image right. it's happened in places like Chechnya like Albania it's starting to happen in Indonesia and it's because Saudi Arabia exports its ideology and, ha- and that I- is such a crucial component right. to all of no it. I think you're I mean what I meant is that like there is a radicalization and then depending on what's there right like that makes them yeah there them, you go that makes them that much more vulnerable right this is the thing when you destroy a country when you remove the government when you collapse the government you can never put it back together again I right. think that's what Afghanistan teaches you more than anything else right and that's why it's so crucial like, Syria is one of the last, like, functioning Arab states that isn't a tool of America. And that's why it has to be destroyed. Like, don't let, this is what pisses me off about these leftists, is they've forgotten what it means to be a leftist. Don't, like, don't get confused here. There's a lot of crappy governments in the Middle East. Right. Saudi Arabia. Why <laughs> yeah, are we doing yeah, stuff in Saudi Arabia? I mean, yeah, being the worst. But even, I mean, even, like, the other governments, like, they're all crappy governments. Like, right. I, I, like, they all suck. The thing is, with Syria... The reason Syria has to be attacked by the U.S., the reason it has to go, is because Syria still maintains a little bit of independence. It doesn't do what the U.S. wants. 
it allows Iran to use it as like a transfer point for Hezbollah. So attacking Syria and destroying Syria, a big part of that is about weakening Iran and also about weakening Hezbollah and basically just getting rid of one of the last Arab states that does its own thing, that does things like, like that maintains its sovereignty. Like Jordan is a tool of America. Right. Qatar is a tool of America. The, all of the Gulf states are tools of America. Um, Lebanon is sort of just like, like in between and trying to like have a functioning state, but it goes back and forth. But like the point is, is Syria is again, like it had a strong economy before this war. It was self-sufficient. It produced its own medicines. It made its own clothes. It like, it was a place where, you know, took great pride in its own like culture. It was, I mean, compared to the other like police states in the region, it was probably one of the more like progressive societies. And now look at it. It's like split into different parts and it's, slowly like you know going into the hands of like different people it's enriched who will at one like someday be like the warlords who got rich over syria and also like you have a whole you have a whole exodus from this country that is like is going to just change that country forever and the whole cities ancient cities have been just completely destroyed and this is because of what we did like our country did nobody takes responsibility for it we invaded Iraq. Everybody knows we invaded Iraq because we sent American soldiers to do it. With Syria, we just outsourced the invasion to like a bunch of religious fanatics. Right, which is probably That's, like, why there is acceptable. right. That's probably why there was a bigger understand, a greater understanding of look, we're anti-war, not pro-Saddam, because we because right. we were sending our own people over there, so we had to confront that. It's funny. I, I mentioned um, Ivan Marovic before, but. He's this guy who's Serbian. He helped overthrow Milosevic. And, and his, once he, he said something about how, like, if a country can't have a rebellion without external support, it's not ready yet, which I thought was kind of an interesting thing to say. And he's not, again, it's not really a moral thing. He's really a nonviolent, like, tactician. And I do think that because, like, look, if there were 90% of the country were up in arms over Assad and wanted a conservative government, one that we really did not, like we kind of couldn't do anything right like if that were just going to happen we would lament it but i don't think you and i you would or i would advocate going in there and um arming it's like the iranian revolution like the iranian revolution was like a conservative right. ultimately conservative right. religious right and of course that's <laughs> and they killed a lot of the communists yeah they killed like yeah they killed like or exiled all of the communists and, and so you've met people in syria uh who were critical of the government but preferred the government to the rebels yeah, I met people in Syria and, and in Lebanon as well who um, who protested in 2011, like younger people um, who protested in 2011. And it was really sad because now they're like, we were, I like almost all of them told me I regret it now. I feel like it's all my fault. And I'm like, trust me, it's like you alone, it's not your fault. Right. Like, I promise you didn't start the war in Syria. Right. Um, but no, like it's, it's just, but yeah, they want, with no question, they want the government to win now because the alternative it's completely unacceptable. The alternative, like, stones women for adultery and doesn't allow little girls to go to school and forces everybody to cover up and, like, imposes this outside culture on Syrians. Like, Syrians are really, Syrian, like, the Syrians are very nationalistic and they're very proud of being Syrian. And they identify as Syrians first before they identify as any religious identity. And so that to them is completely a foreign concept, the idea of like, except for maybe some really conservative areas. Right. But even there, like these Salafi ideas are not, are not like native to Syria at all. Tell me the relationship between like Lebanon and Syria. You have family in both places. Is that like Brooklyn, Queens? It's more like Virginia, Maryland. Like it's like really, really common because Lebanon's a tiny little country. 
like so is Israel Palestine. There's such tiny little specks. Syria is actually much bigger. Um, and so is Iraq. And all of the, all of these places, like a lot of people who have family, people have family if they're Palestinian, while family in Lebanon or Syria, and vice versa. Like that's really really common because these areas are not like big at all. Um, so yeah, I have family that is that's in Syria. Also, Druze, like the like I'm my family's Druze, as Shane Bauer so kindly pointed out. Um, Shane Bauer, Shane like, Bauer, I, by the way, he writes at Mother Jones. That's the thing is like I mean I really like his journalism. He was like hiking in, in Iraq like during the war, I'm, and he like crossed the border by accident. He like accidentally, yeah, him and like his friends accidentally Two stumbled friends, into right. Iran, and they got they got picked up, and Iran accused him of being spies, and like Shane, I mean Shane was like in prison and like solitary confinement for a really long right. time. I mean, he, what he said to me was so bigoted. What did he say? Typical? What was it? Generic? I have it. Can up. You I'm gonna tell post? you exactly what he said. Here's the tweet. He said. All I had to, I just had this Twitter Twitter search sectarian Drew. Yeah. Oh, that's Rania, yeah. He says he says Rania can trick people who know little about Syria into thinking she's not sectarian, but hers is a generic sectarian Drew's position. She's a sectarian masking herself as elected. She uses war on terror rhetoric to discredit anyone who opposes Assad, particularly Sunnis. I mean, he, what he said to me was so bigoted. It it was like. The equivalent of like he, what he accused me of was being like, like put in any other like Ethnic religion minor. or oh, yeah. race into what he said. Right. It's extremely bigoted. So he said to he you, he called me a generic. He said I trick people. He said I use my identity. To, I use my generic sectarian Druze position uh, to uh, trick people into thinking Assad is good. Like you know those conniving Druze. Yeah, I know. <laughs> if I had a pen, like it's for so all those gross, Druze. especially right. when like that's the thing is like I mean I really like his journalism. And I take him seriously, which is why I even engaged with him in the first place. Right. I've had him like I've interviewed him before on my podcast. Wow. Uh, he does really good. He's done really good work on private prisons um, and on criminal justice in general. And uh, he's done really good work. Like he embedded with like the like right. these like fascists at the border, um, and had like a really good piece on that. So I, I I mean I really respect his work. He clearly doesn't feel the same way at all. Like he is. I mean he, what he said to me was so bigoted. I my family like I have relatives surrounded by Al Qaeda. Like, screw you. Can you tell me about Shane Bauer, what his position is? I don't know what Shane's position is. Okay. I He just seemed to be mad that, like, I was condemning the rebels. Or not even condemning. Like, he doesn't like facts. I was just stating facts about the situation in Syria. And he was saying insane things about Syria. Like, he he was trying to say that that, that the only people who support the government are Alawites and um, other minorities. And that's not true. Sunnis in Syria are like 75% of the population. What's an Alawite? Syria, Sorry, what it, I'm a total ignoramus. An Alawite is like a, it's like a Muslim minority group. Okay. And that's, that's the religious identity of, of Assad. If he's, he's Alawite. Got it. But that's not actually like, it's not, people are so, I mean, people have been propagandized so much about Syria. They don't even understand. Like Shane says he lived there for a year. I don't know how you can live in Syria for a year and not know that Sunnis make up the, like Sunnis like dominate the merchant class, like the, like, like the elite capitalist class, and they all very much support the government. Hmm. Like Damascus is a majority Sunni city. It's like almost all of Damascus is Sunni. Damascus would not still be in government hands if Sunnis didn't support the government. Not only that, Sunnis are actually well representative through, represented throughout the government. They, they occupy like leadership positions across the government. The Assad's married to a Sunni for God's sake. So the idea that this is some conflict of like a minority, a tiny little minority, just like ruling over all of these Sunnis who hate the, who hate this government, is completely inaccurate. There are people who hate the government, but that's not how it works. What's really crazy about this whole conflict is when I have white people like Shane and others 
espouse more sectarian hatred towards me than like other Arabs who are sectarian right. do. Some people have a really hard time understanding the sectarianism in the Middle East. So in America, we have white people who are the majority, right? Um, and like the fringes of the whites in America are like have a white supremacist problem where like, you know, especially now with white nationalism on the rise and stuff, that doesn't mean every white person in America is like a supremacist. It does mean there's a problem, right? And like it's against minorities. In the Middle East, the majority of the population is Sunni. And the majority of Sunnis are not supremacists, but the fringe elements of them, Al-Qaeda and ISIS in particular, but other groups like them, um, are, they have a supremacist belief system that is very much like eliminationist towards non-Sunnis. And so they kill minorities and or forcibly convert them like they did to the Druze in Idlib. And the point is, is like, when I hear people like Shane talk like that, it's so stunning to me because he's saying I, a minority in the Middle East, am racist or, I'm sorry, am bigoted towards the majority population that has a fringe element to it that is trying to wipe out the minorities. Like, that is like calling a black person in America racist against whites and then accusing them of supporting white genocide. It's and, nuts. And saying that, nuts. That, that, that they have a generic black position. Yeah, that's a generic racist black position. Reverse racist, like right? Katie, you, you, like Katie, you, you, you actually can empathize with me on this because you have a generic Jewish right. position, I would right. assume. Right, like a generic sectarian Jewish position. Right. On most things. Yeah, I like, I like, gefil- I like white fish. I like buying things on sale. Just kidding. Yeah, how comparable is, is the situation in Syria to Iraq? It's very comparable. So in Iraq, you have like, uh, you have ISIS, uh, that's basically like occupied all of these uh, areas and like wants to get rid of the government and impose an Islamic state as it's already tried to do. And in Syria, you have ISIS as well as Al Qaeda, as well as a bunch of groups that have the same ideology as Al Qaeda or close, close enough to Al Qaeda that want to impose an Islamic state. <laughs> They've occupied parts of Syria and you see a lot of the same tactics used to drive them out as well, like in Mosul and Ramadi and Fallujah in Iraq. the Iraqi army on the ground, like with the help from U.S. air power, basically took back those cities by destroying them. And you see the same thing in places like Aleppo or now in Idlib, where the Syrian army on the ground, uh, with the help of Russian air power, is using the same exact tactics to or have used the same exact tactics to take back areas like destroying the cities to take them back. It's really sad what's happening. Like, I don't know how you drive out ISIS and Al-Qaeda in a noble way, but I certainly disagree with the tactics that both Russia and the U.S. and the Syrian and Iraqi armies have used. That said, like, people have to also understand that, you know, ISIS and Al-Qaeda, like, I don't know. Do you have an answer for how you fight them? I don't. I don't know how you fight ISIS and Al-Qaeda. I don't think killing not civilians bombing is okay civilians, ever. I mean, right? Isn't that kind of the it's go-to? not like it's an easy... It's not like it's an easy answer either, you know? Your position is fairly similar, right, to Max Blumenthal and Ben Norton's, right, I think? Uh, yeah. Have they encountered the kind of silencing that you have? And can you talk about that a little bit? Like, you you just had a talk that was canceled. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so Max and Ben, they get a big, viciously attacked, too. I mean, and Ben oh. sort of got pushed out of his job, I think, because of it. But, of course, like, I, I think that I definitely get the worst of it. And the reason I think I do is because... Um, I'm Arab. I'm an Arab secular leftist woman who's also a minority from the region. And so what I've made, you've um, made with some, with like a certain amount of credibility based solely on identity. And so because of that, it's like really important to silence me because with Ben and Max, you can just say, Oh, they're just some white dudes. Like, like they don't know what they're talking about. 
They're just like Orientalist white dudes. It's much, much harder to make a convincing argument about that with me. Um, so yeah, I had a talk uh, on Palestine uh, last, uh, back in February, or at the beginning of March, I'm sorry. Liar, Assadist, um, Jews, liar. Sorry. Oh uh, yeah. Well, the day like, my I'm going to use that against you. Day. I I I can't. I yeah. trap. Uh, document. Uh, Rania Kalik's lies. Typical generic right. Jews Rania, lies. Rania's sectarian trickery. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Date change. Yeah, sorry. Um, I interrupted you. Sorry. Well, so I had a talk at UNC Chapel Hill, and um, it was it was not even on Syria, on right. Palestine, and the way that like you know the what the what Israel does to Palestinians, it exports all around the world, like training police departments in America. And, you know, um, you know, like practicing testing drones on Palestinians and sending those everywhere. So that, that was one of the, base, the basis of my talk. Nothing to do with Syria. Uh, but when you anger the pro-intervention, the pro-interventionists uh, on the issue of Syria, they want to destroy you in every realm of your life. And so these people have explicitly said they want to destroy my career um, and make sure I can never be platformed anywhere until I change my political position. Like that is the intention here, to silence me until I change what I'm saying. And so the day before my talk, uh, it got canceled because the students were like flooded with messages from these like pro-interventionist trolls uh, calling me an Islamophobe because I had criticized Salafism and Wahhabism and calling me an Assadist because I don't want intervention in Syria and I don't like the Al-Qaeda linked rebels, <laughs> which is I didn't think was controversial. But yeah, they got my talk canceled because the students were like receiving pressure from other Arabs. Like I'm being attacked by my own community, by the most conservative element in my own community, and it sucks. Now, what about... It sucks really bad. Did you have another talk that they tried to cancel and then they didn't? Yeah, so I was giving another talk. Well, there was another talk that got canceled, but they told me, the student group that invited me was for Israel Apartheid Week, and they were they were like, we ran out of money, like a week before, they were like, we ran out of money just for you. Like, there was right. a panel I was going to be on, but they only told me that they ran out of money for me. So, so it was pretty obvious, and I also heard from someone on the inside that, uh, that in that group that like was like, yeah, it was because of Syria. So uh, I had another talk recently with Abby Martin and Minar Muhawish from um, Mid Press, and it was on uh, Syria, Palestine, and Yemen, and independent journalism on those issues. And it, they tried desperately to get it canceled, but the student group was awesome. And they were like, no, we're not canceling this. And they actually cited this letter that a bunch of people signed, uh, a bunch of really cool people like Noam Chomsky nice. being one of them, signed uh like saying that they're against and me or anybody else being blacklisted because of their views on syria right that's what i was thinking of so this was one of the ones that they were able to push back against the cancellation of your talk right mm-hmm. um yeah and i was really proud of them because it's hard for student groups these days to do that like it's really hard when you come under pressure from other people who call themselves leftists to cancel a talk right um it's like a milo or something there, exactly. There's a an interesting interview with you that uh, Justin Poder did, and he's a Canadian journalist, right? Um, That's right. He says he opens his piece, which is an interview with you. He says when Rania, when journalist Rania Kalik's lecture was canceled on February 27th, the group that invited her, Students for Justice in Palestine. University of North Carolina, SJP, UNC, issued a statement saying that the cancellation was because of Rania's views on Syria, quote-unquote views on Syria, and that they believed, quote, her invitation would mistakenly imply SJP to hold such views, end quote. They also added that they, quote, do not endorse nor reject her views on the Syrian war as they remain relatively unclear, according to our members' diverse opinions of Rania's analyses, end quote. <laughs> that makes very little sense to me because they're basically saying we don't know what we think, but she has views we don't like, and we have diverse views, so we can't have her 
um, talk. And, uh, wait, what are you doing in the Middle East? Tell us about your trajectory. So I am going to actually meeting tomorrow. I'm going to, I'm going to Beirut tomorrow. I'm going to spend uh, around at least six months there. Um, Whoa. and I'm going to be in and out of Iraq and Syria. Wow. 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 Yeah. I'm really excited. Who are you reporting for? I really yourself mostly for alternate, mostly, mostly alternate to the gray zone. Nice. Um, so that'll be great. It's, um, it's, they've been really supportive of my work and hopefully probably some stuff for fair. I wish I could say more outlets, but sadly, you know, even progressive outlets that I like and that I've written for before are just not interested in any take on Syria that isn't, no, any take on Syria that doesn't beat around the bush. Like nobody wants to just, nobody wants to say what's happening. And it's so stunning to me because the same outlets that were so integral to and crucial to the anti-war sentiment during Iraq are now just like allowing pro-intervention narratives to like silence and shame them into shutting up about and Syria. Trump, and what's actually it's not happening like there. under, it's not like we got that when it was under Obama, it was like excused, but this is under Trump. That's the other thing. Yeah. I, I was saying this before to not, I, I, we talked to Nanda Villa, like even if you thought the intervention were legit and thought it should happen, I feel like anyone who's rational would be like, not under this guy's watch though. Like we need to delay it. Like, I just don't understand yep. how you could think that a Trump administration could handle it well. I mean, yeah, it was really, it was really strange to me, like how everybody, people I thought were smart, were suddenly just like, like clapping for Trump. Yeah. I'm like, what are you doing? Are you joking? Yeah. I like, mean, I agree with you totally. Like, we haven't done anything good since World War II, like intervention wise. <laughs> and like, I actually don't trust the United States to ever do anything for the right reason. So I, I kind of oppose any intervention by, by default. But I feel like a, a, st- a standard liberal who's like kind of intervention-y would still be able to be like, not on this guy's watch. Like, you know, and I would disagree with them about politics, but there's something consistent. If this guy's a Cheeto, a Nazi Cheeto, an existential threat, a totally unprecedented person, like why do we want him leading it? Won't he just mess it up? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And like, also, why would you want to empower him to where like you're like, he's now just going to war? Yeah. Like, and that's okay. Like, any war under this guy should be opposed, exactly. of course. Right, because he's not going to be and doing it for the somehow, right reasons or he's not going to be competent about it. Right, and so, but somehow, like, somehow what's so crazy, too, is how he did this, like, this bombing in Syria and it suddenly made him presidential. Ugh, like, everybody right. was like, wow, he's so presidential now. Now he's really serious. Well, Rania, thank yeah, you so much for, for coming on the show. This was a great, great, great episode. I'm so excited we did it. Look, whenever you want me to come on, Katie. Uh, yeah. I'm going to be in the Middle East, but I will have Wi-Fi. I'm on the show on the broad. Yeah, let's do it. We could do it. A regular session. Totally. Yeah, no, thanks for having me on. It's always fun to chat with you, Katie. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening to the Katie Helper Show. Please join our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. You're really going to love it because for this week, we give you some extra bonus content. We give you an extended interview with Ronna Kallick. We talked to her about a trip that she took to a conference in Syria that she got into a lot of trouble for. And we get her side of the story, which is, of course, not the side of the story that you would have heard. We also talked to Nanda Villa about Russophobia and the propaganda that's being used against North Korea, maybe to get us ready for war. Who knows? Then we have a hot take competition. Sean Spicer, Nazi signaler or good old fashioned total idiot or both? 
Ben Norton and Nando Villa agree on lots of things, but on this one issue, they're on opposite sides. And we give you some funny outtakes, and you get to hear what happens when Rania has a little bit of a scheduling difficulty, and Gabe and I have to adjust to that. You may or may not hear some problematic language from me and Gabe, in which we discuss some generic Jews' behavior, but it's okay, I got Rania's permission to release this. Please, as always, rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks, see you next week.